This is Tuesday in the octave of Pentecost, in the year of our salvation, 2009. And you're back with Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. When Holy Church sings out in the liturgy, usually she uses the words of Holy Scripture. But in those times when she uses her own compositions, she simply dazzles. Now the sequence for Pentecost, Veni Sancti Spiritus, is just such a moment. And because in the older, traditional calendar, Pentecost has an octave, we can use it many times to deepen our encounter with mystery, which is the whole point of liturgy. We don't know who wrote this fabulous piece of poetry or who composed the melody. Some people attribute the text to Robert II, uh, also called Robert the Pious, who was king of France. He died in 1031. Some like to attribute it to Pope Innocent III, who died in 1216. There's pretty good support for that. And some people will uh, attribute it to Archbishop Stephen Langton of Canterbury, who died in 1228. Uh, it has been attributed to others as well, but you can kind of tell what period of time we're working in. We're working in the, in the heart of the medieval period, in that incredible uh, real renaissance that they had before the period that we call the renaissance. In any event, uh, this sequence eventually... Uh, replaced another sequence called Sancti Spiritus Ad Sit Nobis Gratia, the grace of the Holy Spirit be present to us, which actually sounds a little bit uh, like uh, the collect for Tuesday in the Octave of Pentecost, but I digress. Eventually, it uh, definitively drove out that old sequence uh, with the promulgation by Pius V of the new and unified. Uh, Missale Romana. So let's drill into this incredible sequence today so that we can benefit from it more deeply during Holy Mass, during the Octave of Pentecost, and also during our own devotions at other times of the year.
Pentecost and the octave is one of the few remaining uh, times, one of the few remaining feasts or days in the, in the Roman calendar when we have a sequence. That is a sequence, a, which is literally a continuation, a kind of a meditative and so on. Uh, given to us in the liturgy. In the older form of Mass, for example, when the priest or the deacon uh, says the gospel, they say, sequentia sancti evangelii, continuation of the Holy Gospel, according to whomever it is. So a sequence is a meditative, liturgical, and so on, if you can kind of imagine that between little quotation marks and so on. Because the sequence... And all the sequences, and there were very many of them once upon a time. The liturgical calendar was replete with sequences. They were used all the time because they were extensions, uh, to a certain extent, of the chant that went before, of the Alleluia. You know how the, the structure, the basic pattern of the Roman rite goes. Usually we'll have something sung, and then you'll have something spoken. Spoken, even if the speaking is an, is an actual kind of a singing, like in uh, the the tone for a collect or a post communion, you know, one of the oration tones, you have these these uh, interplays, the one and the other, singing, of, you know, antiphons and then a text that's read, even if it's being sung. And in, in the case of the Alleluia, as a matter of fact, you can hear this extension already starting in in not just the the alleluia but some of the other antiphons where as the history of Gregorian chant moved forward um, they began to lengthen with more ornamentation in them with longer passages more complicated instead of being kind of monotone they started going up and down and up and down and curling around in the melodies in something called a melisma they were melismatic and uh, that was like a resting within the chant drawing it out to the end to give you an opportunity to rest in it meditatively that's what those melismatic endings seem to be. And in the case of the Alleluia, very often they would draw out that last syllable, ya, and go up and down for a while before they finally ended the piece. So the sequence is a resting, a resting in the content of what has gone before and also a preparation for what is coming. So it links, the sequence does, the link, it links the reading that went before with the antiphons and then the gospel that's coming up. So basically what it's trying to do, the sequence, is tuning our soul's inner vision, like turning our lens of our inner eye or, you know, fine-tuning the dial that brings the sound in more clearly of what God is saying through the liturgy. Remember, Christ is the true actor in the liturgy. He's speaking in all the words, all the texts and gestures. So the sequence, to do uh, a sequence uh, justice, really, we would have to you know, go in and examine the, the epistle and the gospel to see what the church is getting at. But, you know, we don't have time to do that today. I'm just going to really focus on the sequence itself and its structure. But during the octave, when we have different readings, but the same sequence, 
you can get a better idea of what a doctor of what an octave is all about. During an octave, liturgical time stops so that we can can consider the great mystery we are celebrating for a longer period of time. Uh, we can, as it were, uh, peer through the crack in the rock, the cleft in the rock at the mystery. Now from this angle trying to see more, and now from that angle and trying to see more, trying to see more of a, a mystery that is certainly too great to contain in the scope of our lifetimes or even into eternity in heaven when we will contemplate these mysterious things for all eternity. But it's certainly bigger than one liturgical day. So the really important moments, uh, the church gives us octaves. And sadly, with the Novus Ordo, the octave of Pentecost was eliminated. I can't fathom why, but it was. But So the, anyway, um, in the older calendar, we have this still, and therefore we have the Veni Sancti Spiritus uh, sung on more than just Pentecost Sunday. So the sequence for Pentecost, Veni Sancte Spiritus, is a restful and meditative continuation of the text in the Alleluia for Pentecost Sunday. That's the Alleluia, come Holy Spirit. Now, this come Holy Spirit is not a phrase from Scripture. Instead, it is a great aspiration, going back to the very roots of the church, a great aspiration of of every true Christian soul. We want to bring about the fulfillment of what's been promised to us. Now in the Pentecost masses, the priest genuflects during this Alleluia before the gospel reading. When he says, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and ignite in them the fire of your love. He genuflects there, which underscores the, the great mystery of what we are uh, and the humility uh, of our of our petition at that moment. And after this genuflection and this text, come Holy Spirit, then we go into this liturgical and so on in a meditative way. Remember, I, you know, put my little fingers up, drawing quote marks, and so on. That's what a sequence is, a sequencia. So what we are doing is developing what our aspiration is within that that uh, that alleluia and so it's important to you know pick up the points here the priest genuflects so you can almost imagine yourself as you listen to this or see the priest up there at the altar like moses on the mountain on, on his knees, peering through the cleft in the rock. In this case, it's the, the text of the missal. Looking to God as he's passing on the other side, considering the mystery. And this is what he's leading you to do. Now let's dig into the text itself. Uh, I'll read the Latin, and then I will read a translation of the Latin that was done by Adrian Fortescue, great liturgical scholar 
in England over the last century. Veni Sancte Spiritus, et emite celitus lucis tue ratium. Veni Pater Pauperum, veni Dator Munerum, veni Lumen Cordium. Consolator optime, dulcis hospes anime, dulce refrigerium. In labore requies, in estutemperies, in fletu solatium. O lux beatissima, reple cordis intima, tuorum fidelium. Sine tuo numine, nihil est in homine, nihil est in noxium. Lava quod est sordidum, riga quod est aridum, sana quod est saucium. Flecte quod est rigidum, fove quod est frigidum, rege quod est devium. Datuis fidelibus, in te confitentibus, sacrum septenarium. Da virtutis meritum, da salutis exitum, da perene gaudium. Amen. Alleluia. Come, Holy Ghost, and send down from heaven the ray of thy light. Come, Father of the poor, come, giver of gifts, come, light of hearts. Best comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet refreshment. Rest in labor, shade in the heat, comfort in sorrow. O most blessed light, fill the depth of the hearts of thy faithful. Without thy grace there is nothing in man, nothing not harmful. Cleanse what is unclean, water what is dry, heal what is sick, bend what is hard, warm what is cold, straighten what is crooked. Give to the faithful who trust in thee thy holy sevenfold gift. Give reward of merit, give salvation at last, give eternal joy. Amen. Alleluia. hear how the prayer concludes with an Amen, and then it's within the bracket of an Alleluia, which connects it, of course, to that Alleluia antiphon, which went before.
what we are going to find in this is uh, a wonderful structure. And I'm going to spend some time to pull this apart. But the first thing that strikes you about this, if you're paying attention to the text, is the word veni, come. It's a command form. Now, in the liturgy, in liturgical Latin, we hear imperatives all the time, presta and concede and and uh, fac and things like that. Well, here, veni, it means come with a big exclamation mark. Well, in liturgical Latin, imperatives are paradoxically humble. They reflect uh, confidence, but not the confidence of arrogance. You know, say, for example, you have a protesting slave standing up to his master or something like that, turning the tables. What we have here is the hum confident humility of an adopted child. We are confident that the father is going to be faithful to his promises. And so we can stand up and we can say something with humble confidence, a lowly imperative, as it were. And that's what these liturgical imperatives are like. Now, this particular humble imperative, come, come, Holy Spirit, reflects the very deepest aspirations of the Christian heart. Uh, the New Testament ends with this great cry, Come, O Lord, Maranatha, come, come, O Lord. And we know that the Holy Spirit is in fact with the church ever since that historic day, that point in history when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in the first Pentecost. We know that God never abandons us or the church, so we know that God is with us. We know that Emmanuel is with us, but we are still awaiting the completion of the work that was begun. A lot more awaits us. And so when we pray to God, come, come, it's not that, except in moments of weakness, that we believe that God has abandoned us. We want that God will not delay any longer, but he will come to us in an even more magnificent way, in a more complete way, even in a way that will herald the end of things, because we want that moment to come when God is all in all. We want God to sweep away all the flaws and obstacles in our lives. We want every last chain and burden to be broken and to be thrown off. That's what we are asking for. It's not that we do not uh, believe that God isn't with us now. It says that we want the, the fulfillment and the completed, uh, the completed plan of God's salvation. And so we pray with humble confidence to God, telling him to come, to come soon. We do so with the hearts of adopted sons and daughters. So let's now walk through this Veni Sancti Spiritus and take a look for its structure and look for some of its themes and what's going on in the petitions. And this composition really is incredibly dense. Like I said above, we don't really knew who the author was, but whoever did this really, really knew his stuff or her stuff. Gosh, since we don't know, it, maybe it was, maybe this was a woman. There were uh, some women scholars in the Middle Ages who, uh, who uh, had a magnificent mastery of Latin. Now, the sequence itself is divided into five strophes, each strophe having two stanzas with a repeating meter. 
And when the sequence is sung with the melody that we use today, you can hear how the strophes are divided because of the variation of the melody. Now, each little melody in the sequence is sung once and then repeated. And then the pattern repeats itself with another melody until you get uh, to the end. So we have five strophes, each having two stanzas. And uh, a strophe is from an ancient Greek word, uh, meaning like a twisting or a turning around. And it indicates a division of uh, poetry, the lines, into, into groups that form a pattern which then can be repeated. And that term strophe probably goes back to ancient Greek theater uh, when a chorus would come out during a performance of a tragedy. They'd come in, in into the orchestra, the chorus would, and they would sing... Uh, they would sing as they were dancing in these twisting and turning lines. And they would sing about the text illuminating the events or the inner meaning of the action that's going on. And so that, what is, that's what this is. That's what this liturgical sacred and so on or sequence is all about. It's a turning of a phrase that illuminates the inner meaning of the action and the other texts surrounding it. And so it's uh, very proper that we have strophes going on here. Now, the first strophe of the Veni Sancti Spiritus is all about the word Veni, or come. second strophe focuses on who the person of the Holy Spirit is. Now, and then the remaining strophes then bring in petitions. So the third revolves around the word reple or fill. As in filling our hearts. Now remember that that Alleluia verse in the Mass for Pentecost, uh, which the sequence follows, or continues in that kind of liturgical, meditative, and so on, uh, that Alleluia verse asks God to fill the hearts of the faithful, reple to warum corda fidelium. And so that's what this third strophe is focused on. The fourth strophe focuses on what we hope the Spirit will do in our hearts once he has filled them. And so each line begins with one of these humbly confident liturgical imperatives. They're all imperatives here. I think that's probably my favorite strophe in this whole thing. It's so bold, and yet it's simultaneously very humble. It, uh, uh, to my mind, it it very much embodies the that lowly confidence of who someone is, a real disciple who's, who senses himself or herself to be a, a child of God, adopted child. 
The fifth uh, strophe, the final one, uh, turns back again and, and focuses on the faithful. So we go to replay, to the hearts, and then to the faithful in, a, in an order. And that uh, picks up, of course, the faithful from that Alleluia verse once again. And it comes to a great climax in this last strophe with, again, with the command form, with the, the word da, da, give, give. So that's the linear construction of the thing. But classical writers, people who are really well-trained, will often construct their Latin compositions in a chiastic pattern. A chiasm, it comes from the Greek word, for the Greek letter, the key, that looks like an X. And it is like, another way to describe this pattern is like an onion skin. You know, when you peel open an onion, you know, it breaks down into smaller and smaller sections, each section mirroring, mirroring the other. So we can call this like an A, B, C, B, A form. The reason why it's called a chiastic pattern with that X is if you put on a page an A and a and then next to it a B, and then down below that you put a B and an A, and you draw a line between the two A's and the two B's, you form an X, and so that's the pattern, you see. So at the very beginning of this uh, meditation, this extension, this sacred liturgical and so on, we repeat the word veni four times. But in the last strophe, at the end, we repeat four times the word da, or give. See, I just worked a little chiasm in there. I said vani four times, and then four times da, you see. And so what this does is it places bookends on the ends of the sequence. It immediately is telling you right away to look for other clues inside to see if the pattern repeats. And so we look then at the second strophe and the fourth strophe. And in the second strophe, we hear six titles for the Holy Spirit. And we hear six petitions in the fourth strophe. And that leaves the third, which is at the center. And the central strophe, if you look at it carefully, it's like a transition from the first two into the next two, but it's also kind of a summary because it gets right down to the heart of the matter. Now, listen to the sequence, and you will also hear the wonderful juxtaposition of positives and negatives. You'll hear the contrast of presences and absences. You'll hear the difference between what the Holy Spirit does and what we are like when he is not present. We hear on the one hand about the fullness of life in the Spirit and on the other hand about our emptiness without the Spirit. He, for example, he cleanses what we are without him. He warms who we are when he is gone, and so forth. So there are those two contrasts, you know, the juxtaposed ends of, uh, of antitheses. And at the very end, you will hear a petition for the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the first stanza, of the 
that last strophe, the final one. The first stanza looks to our lives now, and at the end of the second stanza, we look toward the life to come. So in the first stanza, we ask for the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which help us now. But in the second stanza, we are asking for the perenni gaudium, the perpetual joy of heaven. Now, I think it, it's, it's useful to understand the structure when you hear this thing, because it will really help you uh, rest meditatively in this when you hear it sung, as you listen for the connections and you understand the petitions within the structure of this beautiful sequence. And remember that the sequence flows out of that Alleluia and its complex structure and that hinge point in that spoken part of the liturgy, the, the mass of the catechumens, as it used to be called, points us to a very deep and a very hidden mystery. And that's why I love that genuflection in the Alleluia before you sing this sequence. It's like the priest bending his knee so that he can peer through the cleft in the rock like Moses did at God as he passed. He's peering through the text toward God who is out there. That's why ad orientem worship is so important because you can see this take place. Because the point of liturgy is for us to have an encounter with mystery. And that mystery then is about the mystery of God, but it also it also is about the mystery of the depths of our hearts, which holds God's mysterious image. Come, Holy Ghost, and send down from heaven the ray of thy light. Come, Father of the poor, come, giver of gifts, Come, light of hearts. Best comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet refreshment, rest in labor, shade in the heat, comfort in sorrow, O most blessed light, fill the depth of the hearts of thy faithful. Without thy grace, there is nothing in man, nothing not harmful. Cleanse what is unclean, water, what is dry, heal, what is sick, bend, what is hard, warm, what is cold, straighten, what is crooked, give to the faithful, 
who trust in thee, thy holy sevenfold gift. Give reward of merit, give salvation at last, give eternal joy. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. I hope you enjoyed uh, drilling into this great liturgical text to find out uh, what the prayer really says. And speaking of what the prayer really says, come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com, whiskey, delta, tango, papa, romeo, sierra.com. And if that's a little too complicated to tell your friends, you can also say Google Father Z or look up fatherzonline.com. And you'll find me very easily. We've got good discussions going on, and I think you'll find a lot of very interesting people there as well. So as this octave of Pentecost continues, please pray for me as I will for you. Thank you.